Dale, I think I'll introduce you because um, <laughs> to save you that. Um, so Dale Williams is our, you can see he is our um, speaker after my first opening slot. He is our guest speaker today. And, um, and he's bringing us a, a wealth of experience and hopefully a different perspective. You can see the range of, of people that we have here. So Dale is a, an executive coach by, by current profession. But, um, but he has a, a huge amount of experience in the IT space. In fact, his, his um, CV says that he started programming at the age of 12. And, um, and I can just imagine what that was. It was probably like a Spectrum or the ZX81. <laughs> Um, so, and, and he has experience also with um, the financial services space in terms of um, his um, work at Standard Chartered. So, and now as, as an executive coach, obviously getting a lot of exposure to, um, to working in, to work how it's done in different, in different areas and particularly um, the, the overlap with the education space. So he's going to be talking to us specifically about this topic of using technology and how we can use it better. Um, in terms of our objectives, and um, and then he's he's going to be I think with us until lunchtime. So so hopefully um, be able to um, give us a different perspective on our discussion. So thanks for being here, Dale. So on that note, I'm going to hand over to to Dale, who's going to um, to go into the next session. I think we just need to switch the. Are you? Some of you have met all of you. I've worked with some of you before, which is nice to see some familiar faces. Um, I've been asked to talk on using technology in actuarial tuition and assessment, which sounds very formal and sounds like I should know something about actuarial education, um, which I only have a very scant understanding of. Um, so I've, I've reframed it as strategic developments in education technology, which is something I do know something about. Um, and I'm hoping that with that view from myself in terms of what's going on in the world of education technology, this combination of technology and education are creating new opportunities and threats, I think, for everybody involved in any aspect of education. Um, I think that will be quite interesting as some context for your day and maybe just to get you thinking and maybe some of the points I make there will be a little bit controversial. Um, I hope so. Um, or at least just confirm some of the things, all the traps that you're already on. So, um, let me, just, let me just start by saying um, what I've been doing for the last little while, which has given me some insights into this world. So the, so the first is um, I've convened a course at UCT called Strategic Thinking. So I've had some, some exposure to some of your students, or many of the students who go through a business science, actuarial science, um, and many others who do accounting and do other um, uh, uh, marketing and... So, so that's come out of a classroom giving lectures, very traditional, where it was in 2007 when I started, and it's evolved and we've used some forms of technology over time with that and introduced technology and running weekly modules and using um, online and ways to engage people in the classroom using technology. Um, the second is Get Smarter, which is a company I've been involved in as an executive coach to the two founders, Sam and Rob Paddock, since 2011, um, and walked a journey with them from when they were 30 people to um, last year selling the company to 2U, which is a global education technology company, perhaps one of the foremost in the world, 
Um, and, um, and actually, to this day, I'm sort of just I'm rounding out the last of my commitments there over the next couple of months. Um, and that's been a fascinating journey, and I'm going to layer in some of the lessons I've learned there into the things that I talk about. Um, and then the third is the Center for Creative Leadership, which is a global um, executive education organization. And there, where the target market is executive education, so we're working with uh, people such as yourselves and um, offering training and uh, courses mostly in leadership, but again, how technology seeped into those environments in different shapes and forms over the years. Um, and then underpinning, and actually which is my connection to Andrew from, I had a look at the dates, 1987 when I first met Andrew, um, was ISEC, where I first got exposed to education in a very multicultural um, and running education sessions. And in those days, the technology was quite scant. We were talking about telex machines and faxes, and we ran a global exchange program where we exchanged 6,000 people in the year using fax machines and DHL couriered floppy disks. So I'm showing a little bit of my age. Um, so, so through this journey, I've, I think I've been fortunate that I've been exposed to how things have developed over the years, right from the very sort of cutting edge of what's happening with education technology now on a global scale, um, to you, the company that bought Get Smarter, run graduate degree programs, um, and they probably are, well, they are the leading um, OPM provider in the, um, in the US, um, and seen in the last year in quite a depth how they operate and how they work with, um, with educational technology, um, has given me quite an interesting understanding of how all these pieces fit together. So I'm going to talk, I'm thinking for about 15 minutes or so, but I'm very open. So I'm happy if you interrupt me and my 15 minutes becomes the full 45 minutes and it becomes conversational, or that we get through 10 or 15 minutes and then uh, we have questions and answers or we have a conversation that comes out of that. I'm, I'm very easy. Either way, you want to do that. I am going to move quite quickly and I will give you um, copies digitally of everything that I've got here, so you'll have it to take away. So there's some points and things, so you don't need to take notes. Um, you, will have, you will have all of that. I thought I'd focus in three areas. Firstly, just a little bit of the landscape of education technology and what's happening. Um, secondly, some scenarios which I've drawn out some of the big influences that I see playing out, and this is the area which may be a little bit controversial, particularly for those in academia, um, in terms of how I think these, the routes could go. And scenarios are quite useful in saying, rather than having a plan and saying, we're here and we're going to get there and this is our absolute plan, we can play out and we can say, what are the different ways that this could um, evolve? And then for yourselves as ASA, to say, well, how, what would happen in that scenario? What would we do? And how, what would our response be? Because I think sometimes it can be a little bit daunting when you're thinking about all these changes. And I can just pick it up a little bit of conversation. You know, the, the euphoria about data science and big data and AI in the last year, I'm sure, must have been a thing to think about from an actuarial point of view. And, and then how do you deal with these things and what happens and where do they go to and how do you respond to them? And, and hopefully the scenarios can do that. And the application is what comes out in our conversation and questions and answers and, um, and anything that, that leads from that. So let me get into it. And I'm going to, I've pulled from um, a study from an organization called Study Portals, which it covers over 170,000 courses in 3,000 <laughs> educational institutions around the world. Um, and they basically provide information for people who are wanting to study. Um, and what they've done is they've pulled together eight global trends. And I'm going to run through these trends and a few other trends that I've picked up to give you a sense of what's going on in this world of, um, of higher education. So the labor market shifts and the rise of automation. So we, we know this a lot. Um, I'll mention a little bit later the fourth industrial revolution, which I'm, I think you've spoken about at some point. Conrad, did we, we had that conversation. Um, so sort of this idea that 
sudden and dramatic changes as a result of technology, some of which we've seen, some of which creeps up on us over time, and then we look back and we go, oh my goodness, how did we ever live without an iPhone or without Uber or without Airbnb or all these things? Um, and some disrupt industries, you know, such as digital photography um, or communication in terms of WhatsApp and cell phone providers. For, you know, so some of these things happen to us quite quickly and some of them happen over time, and then we look back and we realize they're quite quick. Um, so th this idea of automation and what happens to all these people, which is not really an actuarial issue because I think you'll always be a very um, elite and niche part of the, of the labor market, but it's still quite interesting in terms of the work that you do and, and how that plays out um, and what do these people do. So things like um, uh, guaranteed minimum wages and things like that. The second trend is the economic shifts and moves towards emerging markets in higher education. So this is quite interesting because the lower middle and the upper middle um, countries are growing at a much higher level. So you can see from that graph, um, the two lines that are growing significantly, the blue line in the middle is the, um, is the, is the upper income countries, and that's growing, but the upper middle um, and the lower middle are growing at much steeper rates in terms of tertiary education. So there's more people demanding tertiary education um, in those countries. The third is a growing disconnect between employer demands and college experiences. And this, I think, is an interesting one I'm going to pick up in the scenarios. I think if you think about the role of education, what education does is it provides people ready for employment um, and there's always been a reasonably good connect between what universities provide and what employers need um, and there's a growing disconnect between that and we've seen it play out in, in, in a couple of different ways which I'll pick up in other trends. Um, and it, I think that's very important to understand that because if that disconnect gets too wide, then it creates opportunities for other people to step in and fill the breach and offer things which weren't perhaps possible in the past. Um, and I mean, it brings into question, I think it's too, if you think back five years ago, they had, um, I can't remember who wrote it, one of the big consulting firms, McKinsey, I think, wrote the, um, the avalanche is coming. Some of you might have read it about sort of MOOCs and how that's going to completely decimate university education, which obviously hasn't happened. Um, but the sort of fear that universities become irrelevant at some point, and I don't think that's what this is saying either, but it's saying there's a threat and there are people who are organizations, companies, businesses looking for opportunities um, and might fill the breach where universities aren't meeting those. So that's an interesting trend. Um, the growth in urbanization and a shift towards cities. Um, more and more people are moving to metropolitan areas um, and that's affecting how, what they need in terms of, um, of uh, education. And if you think South Africa, what, what, what in a South African context, what that does as well is it creates a um, if you think regionally in terms of Africa and South Africa, the demands for education and what's relevant in South Africa is not always completely in sync with what's relevant for the world. And I think, Conrad, we had that conversation even for actuaries. What's relevant for actuaries in South Africa, there's some demands and challenges and opportunities which are quite different to what's going on globally. And how you marry those two together is, a, is an interesting trend as this, as this urbanization increases. Um, this one's interesting, maybe, I'm not sure for South Africa, certainly um, the US at the moment, but restricted immigration policies and student mobility. So those people in those um, emerging markets want to study in the first world and they want to move and it's becoming increasingly hard to move because of immigration policy. So that's a, it's kind of a trend which is also a tension. A lack of supply but growth in demand, um, so the greater demand for education, which you can see where some of those areas where there is demand, and there's a lack of supply, so new supply of education, which again is creating opportunities for other people to step in and fill that gap um, in terms of education. And then the rise in non-traditional students, so these are students who are particularly older, so um, the, the report estimates there will be a total of over four, nearly four and a half million in the age group, um, age of 
24, over the age of 24, um, enrolled in the 15 high-income countries. So if you look again on a graph, you'll see um, some of the countries, particularly China, becoming very dominant, huge investments in education, but older people doing education, not people who are going for their first undergraduate degree um, at an age of 18 or 19 and going three or four or five years, but actually people who are older and more mature students who have a different requirement and need in terms of what they're looking for in education. Um, this is illustrated um, through this idea of open lo loop learning, which is something which Stanford University came up with. Um, and I'm going to just play a short clip from the, um, from the head of Stanford University, John Hennessy, talking about what that is and, um, and how that plays out. From the open loop university concept, this notion that um, don't, for a four-year combined period here, um, but maybe come, uh, go outside the university, get working experience, interesting volunteer or service experiences, uh, and make multiple times, initially to complete, but eventually, uh, maybe for some sort of continuing professional development. This, this vision came out of a study that the design school did. Of course, they actually ran to challenge students to think about how how education might change in the future. And it's a fascinating idea because at one level you'd say, um, this is really what should happen. Students should be able to go out of the university, get some real life work experience. And of course, what other things do this. Even at Stanford, more than a third of our students take five years, but they take it because they're stopping out and going and doing something else that they're involved in. Maybe it's trying their hand on entrepreneurship, maybe it's going in project. So lots of students are opting for something already. I think the other is the notion of a lifelong student. This has become the reality, right? People want to come back. And in a, in a time where uh, you may not your life anymore, you know, in the old days, you had one, two, or three jobs during a lifetime. Now, have a half dozen or a dozen jobs during lifetime in two separate kinds of careers. Um, I think we're going to see more and more people uh, coming back. And we're trying to develop methods to support that. Not only professional education, like say in the engineering school or medicine or uh, where things are constantly changing and people need to come back and engage in courses, often online because people are simply too busy to come physically to a place anymore. There's a great but it's also much what people's work lives look like. We've also begun to think about that uh, something people might do later in their lives. Um, people who retire now at 65 don't think they're going to retire purely a life of golf and fishing. Um, they're interested in what they might do. They may not want something that's a normal 9 to 5 or probably more likely seven to eight uh, schedule in the day, um, but they wanted to experiment with this. So our, our former dean of the medical school, Phil Pisa, was started this thing called the Distinguished Careers Institute. That highly accomplished people who are looking the next phase of what they might do in their lives. Much of it will be working in nonprofits or community service. Some of it might be coming back into the academy and using their knowledge and their experience to do that. So that's another way of thinking about how do you how do you engage in a different way of education? Whether or not the undergraduate experience will ever span over six or seven or eight years, that's harder to predict. 
because a lot of what in the undergraduate experience is social growth and development of skills for leadership and collaborative work with people. And while that could be spread out, it's a little more tricky when students form very strong social bonds with their class. It would make it harder to do that. But I think we'll see over time how it, how it evolves. Yeah, so it's, just, it's quite interesting to think about those variations on education. I think so often we, we've been through an education system in a way and it looks the same and it's kind of stayed the same. Um, and to think about how it might change and how it is changing. And then the last of these eight points is the dwindling budgets for institutions. So um, research shows states in the U.S. are spending $9 billion less on higher, sorry, states around the world are $9 billion less on higher education than they were in 2008. Other data from 2017 indicates that about 33 states accumulated revenue below the original projection, so they're not making as much money. And um, one of the people from Metropolitan State University in Denver said, if this continues, this, this trend, Basically, by 2025, um, there will be no funding in higher education. So it will be pretty much everyone pays for, pays for what they use. So it's quite interesting. I mean, any thoughts that you have around those trends? Anything you agree with or disagree with or um, that you've seen in any shape or form? We're waiting down, really. Um, yeah. the, uh, the, the, the thing that made me think uh, um, it was the, the video about the, um, the open loop. Um, Censored, though it was. I think Discovery censoring our videos, guys. I think. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I mean, this this idea keeps coming up. The idea of, of could students be somehow deployed into the marketplace as as they're progressing through their studies to give context to what they're learning, um, and it's always a difficult one because you're breaking so many uh, norms. But on the other hand, it to me, it's one of the solutions to the problem that I have of students who are not aware. Um, who come from disadvantaged backgrounds, don't understand the, the, the business environment and are being taught all these things that they're learning by rote because it doesn't make any sense until they sit, actually eventually sit down in the job and then try and retcon what it all meant and how it all applies. And I, I still haven't come, come up with a better way of, of trying to, to make a student understand what it will be like to work as an actuary, no matter how much we talk. And that, yeah, how do we get them into these workplaces? Some of them do VAC work and I think that helps, but, yes. but how, how do we get them really engaging with those things so that when they learn something, it it's a solution to a problem that they've already known about, as opposed to giving them the solution and then later It's uh, somewhat theoretical the until they've actually dealt with it, yeah, exactly. Steve? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so on that, um, I'm, I'm grappling with this with our third year class. Um, essentially, we have the situation where we have a four-year degree, but it's effectively a three-year degree and an honours year, so students have to reapply and we have a large number that don't meet the grade to come into the fourth year, and we say go out into the workplace and come back. And there are two things we discover. Half the students don't want to go out into the workplace. They don't. They really don't. They don't. They're scared. They're scared. And the second is, is that once they go out, many of them don't want to come back. Okay. So, yeah, so, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, hmm. challenge that we, we, we have on, on that side hmm. is getting them out there and then getting them to come back. Yeah. And I have a different view on vacation work. Um, and the reason I have it is, is that um, our students who have no experience in the workplace, who do go out and have a two-week VAC job, come back highly disillusioned and often want to change degree. <laughs> because cause the, experience, the experience is so bad. Um, and I actually think we're doing a disservice to those students because um, everyone knows there's a discomfort factor. So when you go out, and I tell everyone, change is difficult, and it takes about six months 
to adjust to change. We see it when they go out into, they come from school into university and they go from uh, university into the workplace. And I think that, and, and I've been fighting against this for years and people misunderstand me, I think that when we send students who have never worked before out for two weeks to an employer who thinks they're doing a social good and hasn't put effort into it, we actually disillusion those students and then they come back and say, it really was bad, it wasn't what I thought and can I change into something else? Yeah. So I think we need to, to think about that quite carefully. Good, thanks. Let's take one more point and we'll move on. Just a question, I have on other bullet points six yes. and eight. Yes. Um, whether you can maybe just expand a little bit on that because they're in a way conflict for me. I mean, you've got lack of supply, which kind of makes sense if you have dwindling budgets, but you have growth in demand. So yes. surely people are prepared to pay for education and which says to me there's a, a market opportunity. Right. Why is it? Why is there no private capital flowing into education to the extent that fills that uh, dwindling budget for public institutions? I, I mean, I think there's there's gaps because in the in the top universities there is private capital and they have these huge endowments which keep them very much afloat. But there's a there's there are very few that fit into that category, and it's the public funding that goes into them. Um, and, and, I mean, it's a U.S. phenomenon, but there's an academic inflation, uh, which is the way that the U.S. does education. They do it in quite an expensive way, more expensive than most other countries. So the, the inflation just keeps growing. Um, and, and the government is spending less, you know, they're getting, getting pulled in other ways. So it's more about the public funding going in, in terms of the support than the private. I think the, the universities that can get private funding are great, but not everyone gets private funding. It's harder for some universities. Good. So... Um, I wanted to then just push on and add another, some more trends, which I'm not going to go through, but I want to pick out one or two which I think are important, which is this idea of big data and machine learning and, and AI, um, which is something which, um, I mean, we've had an interesting experience at Get Smarter, just to tell you a story. So we've, we've figured out that we have a lot of data because we, we I don't know, this, we, Get Smarter is a company, we run short courses. Um, we, we worked initially with UCT. Um, we work with Wits and Stellenbosch University, and we also work now with Harvard and Cambridge and Oxford and MIT, um, London School of Economics and Chicago. Um, and we run courses where we work with faculty, and they're typically courses which are not necessarily run on campus. Um, so they're filler courses for people who want to get ahead in their career in some way and learn something. And it's interesting, the demographics. In South Africa, 50% um, of the people who do get smarter short courses don't have a degree. So it's a proxy to say they have some sort of uh, knowledge about a particular topic, project management or internet marketing or something like that. Internationally, amongst the um, universities in the UK and the US, 50% of the people who take the courses have a master's degree. So it's completely reversed and it's very interesting. So these are people who are very well accomplished, quite advanced in their career, very well academically qualified, um, and they wanted to learn something around fintech or big data or artificial intelligence, which are some of the biggest courses that we've got in the most popular courses. So these are people who, um, from the research we've done, are typically looking to fill a gap. So it's either, it's either opportunity or fear-based, if you think of somebody who's maybe an investment banker in the UK and they've hear about this thing fintech two years ago and what is it, I'm not sure what it is, I can do a course with MIT or Oxford and I can learn about it in a short period of time. It's a high-quality course. Um, our NPS, which is our best um, NPS, is how students rate you, is very high. We, we 40 plus, Harvard University has a 45 NPS. It's quite hard to get above zero just as a base, so um, don't think about it in a, in a scale from 0 to 100. Um, and, and we have very high completion rates. So we have 92% completion rates, people who start actually finish the courses. Um, but it's quite interesting, firstly on one side is the topics that are really, have been really successful for us and interesting, which have been um, internationally and those topics, big data, machine learning, AI. 
Um, and these are people who are going to come out of the course not with a deep knowledge of it, but with just enough knowledge to complement what they're already doing. So, I mean, certainly I think we could say that's a trend in the world in terms of what the interest is. In, in these are areas which are growing, and I liken a little bit to what the internet was like in the 1990s. It was kind of this explosive area of new things, and of course, everything predicted won't take place, and it won't change the world as dramatically as we think it will, and yet there will be some superb uh, some significant disruptive changes. If you think of what came out of the 1990s dot com, which almost 80 90 percent of the companies failed, but out of it came the Amazons and the Googles and the Apples and the, a few outliers who just, and Facebook a little bit later, which just have dominated the world in many ways. So the thing, I think, to think about these trends is things like big data, machine learning, AI are interesting. They're not going to probably change the world as much as we say they are that you read in you magazine, but they probably will change the world in terms of certain things will make fundamental shifts in the way that we think and the way that we work. Um, other trends, and what I did was I scanned a whole bunch of publications inside um, higher education and, um, uh, and a number of others and pulled out some of the trends that were repeated over and over. Increased interaction, so how you interact with people. Um, technology, we've learned as well by creating a pedagogy which is very engaging, where people work in groups, they solve problems together, um, and the technology is all there to do that today. So you, there, there's almost no limits on it. And it's only been quite recent. If you think about, we, we had Skype three years ago, um, we've got Google Hangouts in the last two years, Zoom in the last year to year and a half has become fairly uh, common everywhere, and you can quite comfortably, we, we quite comfortably will be in a Zoom conversation with six or eight people anywhere in the world and it will be like in the room and you can sit and talk for an hour or two very comfortably, not like the old video conference that it used to be um, 10 years ago. So this allows for different interaction and increased interaction across borders and cultures and all sorts of other things. Um, education inflation I mentioned. Um, the interesting one which came up in a couple of places was by 2030, 85% of the jobs in the world will be new. So there will be jobs that just don't exist in the world. And so, I mean, listening to your, your conversation about designations, for me, is quite interesting to go, kind of what are those forces that are going to pull at the actuarial designations in shapes and forms and going to kind of splinter off bits and pieces, maybe, um, and offer parts of it which aren't nearly as completed was, as what they are now. But perhaps some of these trends are going to impact that in some way and how you think about those. And I think strategically, you've always got to think, um, you know, do you resist, do you try and counter, or do you try and run with it and shape it in some way. And I mean, those are three quite different strategies in terms of how you actually deal with these things. Um, lifelong learning we've mentioned. Um, Asia EdTech, I mean, this is incredible in, in that Asia is probably likely, and it's, it's a little bit blind to us because we're quite Western-focused, Europe, USA, probably a lot with it in terms of education technology. But 54% of the world's education technology is likely to come out of Asia within the next two years. Um, the MOOCs, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the massively open online content, which was this big thing that was going to disrupt, those companies are trying to reinvent themselves now and trying to say, how do we commercialize these and build businesses? Um, and they've changed. And while they still provide uh, access to many people to education, they wouldn't have, I don't see them as a big threat in any way to universities. It's like the, the, I remember at UCT four or five years ago speaking to all the heads of department, and it was a little bit of paranoia in the air, like where are we going to be and what's this going to be? And I think that's one of those things with these trends that you have to think about is say, in and of itself, the one thing predicted is not going to play out, but what are the ancillary things that come out of it? Like, what, like out of dot-com came you know, Facebook and Google, which changed the way we do many things. Um, what are those things? And try and look for those, because I think that's the, those are the things that are going to impact us and, and we have to think about. The reduced cost of technology and availability of technology, and I'll, I'll talk about that more in the scenarios, and we've spoken about the um, lifelong loop university. Um, 
I, I just threw this in. I don't want to um, talk about it too much. The fourth industrial revolution, um, really just they've conceptualized it quite well. And what's quite useful in it, if you want to dig into it, is to look at which jobs get affected and over what time. And they've used the World Economic Forum um, network to research it with all the members to say which are the jobs most likely to be affected and by when. How will they be disrupted? And that's quite interesting. Um, but it looks at it from business, government, people, all the different stakeholders and how this technology change is likely to cause changes for all those different stakeholders. And I think that's, um, that's, that's definitely worth digging into. I'm absolutely not going to go through any detail, but I thought this was interesting. 90 plus ed tech companies writing the future of education. That's how many businesses are out there thinking about education and building businesses on the back of education, which is very interesting. So if you think about where education has and was, I mean, education institutions are some of the oldest in the world. Um, they've owned education, and it's really been the remit of tertiary education organizations, or, uh, universities that have owned education. And now you have all these people playing in the space. And you can see it as threat or opportunity. Some universities, and I'll talk about that in, in scenarios, some of you know, almost rejected. It's very political in the US um, in terms of, um, of, of the space and people making money out of education, particularly between public and private funded universities. Um, but I thought just interesting for the awareness of this group, these are all the people playing in the world. And these are the ones known. These are not the startups in the garage. These are people who listed, raised a couple of rounds of finance. They're actually out there. They, they have revenues. They have, um, they have a business. So it's, it's a busy space. So what I thought I'd do then just to finish off um, is to ask the question, what will educational technology look like in 2030? And I, what I've done is I've looked at all of those different variables and I've distilled them down and we could argue about it and if we had more time and we were doing this as a strategy session, we might debate it and come up, you might come up with different things. So I'm, I'm very open for you to challenge and, and, um, and, and, and you, you may frame it differently. But what I thought about was I thought, what are the two biggest uh, trends which are likely to have long-term impact? And when I think about um, you know, it's, it's impact both in the probability that something's likely to change and in terms of the impact in terms of how much change it will cause or how much disruption it will cause. And what I thought is the two are probably around this technology growth, like what will happen with technology. So we know from the 70s, Moore's Law, which said, um, you know, the, the, the price of technology or the, um, the speed of a microprocessor will double every two years. And I think you added to that a little bit later and the price will halve, which held all the way through till about 2003, 2004. Um, and it fueled this huge growth in technology. And now we're at a different stage where technology is at a different stage and it's more what we're doing with the technology when we're thinking about machine learning and artificial intelligence. And I think how fast that moves and how exponentially that moves will be quite interesting. And I think that's one of the big variables. It, it may be overpromised and overhyped and it might just settle into its place along with other things that have come along as different fads over time. Or it might be something which really changes the way, the way that we work, which, um, which we don't know, all right? And that's the future, it's unpredictable. And then the other, which may be a little bit controversial, is accreditation and thinking about who does the accreditation. And that might seem preposterous. Like of course, universities do accreditation. But with all these players in the business market um, and with the power that business has over politics, if you think about that shift in the world, if you went back to the 60s and 70s, very much the politics dictated what happened in countries and businesses were subservient to politics. If you think about the 2008 financial crisis, it was very clear that business su supersedes what politics do and, that, and certainly in the US, which is our you know, global leader in some respects that we look to, um, business is a much more powerful force. So the question would be, what happens with accreditation in education? So I mapped those out and I said, well, what happens if you put these on an axis and you say at the top you have exponential technology growth, so a bit like Moore's law with the microprocessor, but you have the ability for technology to 
increase its ability to learn and um, I'll divert for a minute and tell you a story. So one of the, the challenges we have with Get Smart is we market courses online. So we take adverts with Google Ads and Facebook and LinkedIn, and when people are looking for things for um, skills or jobs, our ad will pop up and they click on it. And we have almost too many people who click on them and they express some interest to the number of people we can phone, because physically phoning someone takes some time, but for somebody to click on something and fill in the details is quite quick. And so we have to make decisions about who we phone. And one of the most interesting things I've seen in the last year was one of our um, technologists, uh, a software developer, who we hired initially to do educa um, educational analytics, so basically to figure out who's going to drop off courses and how do we intervene before they drop off the course so that they don't drop off the course. So analyzing all the data of who posts on the forum, how active they are, have they handed in their assignments, a uh, bunch of variables and use machine learning to come up with techniques to say, okay, this person looks like Conrad's at risk of dropping off, so before he drops off, we'll phone him and say, um, can we help you with this? We see you struggling with an assignment. So we, we, were, we were building that system. But the, one of the problems we had in the other part of the business was the sales problem. And this guy, in his, in his uh, spare time at evening, wrote the system. And what he did is he took data um, last year, and he took the data from... Um, I think July through to September, and he used that as learning data, and he used machine learning techniques, which he said, if you go back even two years ago, we couldn't do this. It wasn't possible because we didn't have the technology, and the techniques, although the, the statistical techniques were known, it wasn't possible to actually implement them on software. It would take too long to run, but now with cloud services, you can write it and you can spawn up 15 servers to work on a problem very quickly. You don't have to run it on your own computer. Um, long story short, he built the system, and he said, if I now look, and he presented to us in November, if I look at what we did in terms of um, our sales over the month of October, November, the, uh, halfway through the month to halfway through the month, he said, we now know what we actually did in terms of who we phoned, whether they're the right person or the wrong person. Um, and he said, with my system, I can also now go back and I can show what I would have predicted before we start. And the graph is remarkably similar. I can't show the data, obviously, but um, the graph is remarkably similar. And it, it struck me that these techniques which are very new. They, they're really just at the, at the um, embryonic stage, but they're coming into business. And in two contexts there, one in driving business and sales from that point of view, but the other in educational technology and trying to predict how a student is going to do well before they actually do it. And what's fascinating about it is you would, I would think from a, uh, you know, you actually, so you have superior analytical skills to what I have, but I would think you would analyze a bunch of variables and we would apply those same variables to everyone in this room if you were all in a class and would be able to predict an outcome. And in fact, they do something quite different, is they have a set of variables and they apply different variables to every person. And the computational techniques allow you to look at that particular set of variables for that person and then predict. And these are things like they arrived at our website using an iPhone 7 as opposed to an iPhone 6. Or they first made contact with us six weeks before as opposed to eight weeks before the course start date. And as a result of these variables and numerous others, we had about 15, they could highly reliably predict what was happening. So I look at this and I go, wow, imagine what that could do. I mean, we have Siri on our phone which learns our voice and we have Google Maps who figures out which routes we drive and starts to suggest things, which is applying these techniques. Imagine how that would look if we go forward to 2030. So that's on my vertical axis, exponential technology growth. And at the bottom, I've said more linear technology growth, which is it obviously grows. Technology will always develop. Um, and then on the left and the right, I've said university and business. And let me explain that 
um, because what this diagram gives us is it gives us four scenarios for what educational technology might look like in 2030. So the first is if the combination of exponential technology, as I've spoken about, and universities being the primary accreditors of education, and it's obviously too simple to say it's one or the other, but it's useful to put on a continuum. If we say universities are the primary accreditors and this exponential technology, universities will need to reinvent themselves in terms of how they offer courses. It, won't, it, it, it just won't work anymore to have you know, 100 people or 30 or 400 people in a lecture theatre lecturing to them and people physically coming to the space. And you know, it's just not going to work like that. So the universities will have to reinvent themselves and think about um, how they operate. They'll also have to reinvent their business models in terms of um, how they make money, which you know, is a, is a, is a, for some universities is a difficult thing to do, particularly not the big highest named universities in the world. So Purdue University in Kapl uh, Bayern Kaplan, which is a private company in the US, is interesting because they're basically a public university bought a for-profit university because they realized that the for-profit university had something that they could benefit from together. So this kind of combination between public and private, which sounds preposterous from an academic point of view, but um, these things are happening. So how they reinvent themselves is a, is a, is a question. Obviously, from a, both a 2U and a Get Smarter perspective, we've seen universities, some are very keen. London School of Economics see short courses, maybe because they started and their roots were short courses 100 years ago, um, they see that as a huge opportunity and they, they see that as a way of defining themselves in the market and experimenting with new ways of presenting material and thinking about it as the first interaction someone has with the university might be a short course, but over time they'll come in and they'll do um, an executive ed and then maybe over time they might do something more um, substantial. So reinventing universities is the first scenario. On the opposite end is if business starts uh, playing and making inroads into this world of accreditation, and I'll give you a concrete example of that in a minute, um, which we can see already with Get Smarter certificates. They're not accredited. It's not, a, it's not an NQF level. It's basically a piece of paper to say people have completed a course and they've done a piece of work at a certain level. But that has value in the marketplace. And it, we know people write us stories to say, I went for my job interview and I used that um, and I got the job interview because I could show that I'd taken initiative and I'd learned something about pro um, project management or internet marketing. Um, so employees are looking at this and they employers are looking at this and they're saying we can see that as some sort of proxy. Some universities have work-based learning um, recognition which they will recognize it in a more tangible way but if businesses start to play more in that role um, it's it becomes, I think, a challenge for universities in some way, or maybe, maybe not, maybe they can work with it. Um, if it's in this world of linear technology growth and not exponential technology growth, then I think it's probably more like it's a fad of sorts. It's kind of a business fad that comes and goes and there will be another one and there will be another one. So I don't see it as majorly disruptive over a long period of time, but I think it's interesting um, of how that plays out. So the first scenario, reinvent the university. The second scenario, the combination of businesses giving accreditation um, and linear technology growth is the next fad, please. The, the top right is the one which is, I think, um, quite challenging, which is if businesses um, really make inroads and that, that list of 90 plus companies, one or two or three of them become the Googles and the Facebooks, which really make inroads into education um, and can really play a role in education. So just think about this as a thought experiment. Already now you can go onto LinkedIn and you can say, I want to work in this field in this city and it will tell you which university you should go to because it obviously has the data to match up the people from that university typically end up in that career in that city. If you think not too far ahead, LinkedIn could quite easily give accreditation to say this person 
their skills have been confirmed from these courses that they've done, which may not be university courses, and the combination of it gives somebody who's highly employable in this area, because we know that because we've got data which shows that there's 400 people in that area that are all employed with that combination of skills. The data is all there already. So you could imagine a private company making a real challenge to universities, offering something to employers who could say, this person has these skills and I, I can, you know, I, the computer can vouch for those skills because we've got data to show that people with those skills from those different places can do this job at this level. It's a real challenge for an educational institution, an academic approach, which is just one single way of getting accreditation. Um, and I've, I've labelled it Moore's Law Corollary, which is the ability for computers to learn doubles about every two years, because I think it could be driven by people using technology in various ways, either um, selling or creating courses or creating learning environments online, um, which are very adaptive to the students that are in those environments. And then the fourth is um, the opposite of that, which would be that the universities really retain um, the accreditation. The technology doesn't grow as well, um, or as fast. Um, and if you think about universities, and this is a counter-argument, and if you think these uh, scenarios are contradictory, they purposely are contradictory because they pull in different directions. Universities are the oldest organizations on the planet. There's no organizations that are older. Maybe the Catholic Church. Um, but I think if you think about universities, you know, um, El Caron in Morocco is 859 um, AD. Uh, University of Bologna, 1088, Oxford, 1096, Cambridge, 1209. These are very old institutions. Companies haven't lived this long. And that says two things. One, they are very resilient. Um, and two, that um, they're not very adept to change. We are still doing things in the universities that we were doing 100 years ago. Um, and, and, you know, using similar, not too dissimilar technology. And they're quite slow to change in some way. So there is a scenario which despite all the forces and pushes you know, into this new world and growing technology, actually things, they change, but they change more, more incrementally than, um, than we think they might. What are the flags for these? So um, the flags are pretty much indicators. So if you, I think if you saw the failure of many ed tech companies, you would see yourself pulling more towards the universities having more power in this accreditation game. Um, if... if AI and machine learning, because it can be applied in so many broad fields, ends up being more applied to science and health and education becomes a poor cousin for the application of AI and machine learning. Perhaps it, it, that's, that's the flag that says it's more linear rather than exponential. Um, this is, if it is more exponential technology growth, just think about this again as a thought experiment. I don't, does anyone use Audible to listen to audiobooks or anyone listen to audiobooks? A couple of people. So you can listen to an audiobook now, as, you know, so you can be driving in your car and you can if you frame it slightly differently, you can be downloading the information that's in that book, right? Whether, I mean, if it's fiction, it's for your interest and entertainment. If it's non-fiction, it's for your learning. So you can be listening to the book. And you, those who listen on Audible know you can listen at double speed if you want. So you could listen to the book at double speed. And there are people who actually listen at four times and five times the speed. And they're absorb, trying to absorb as much as they can. It's not too far a, a thought process to go, you know, we walk around with phones. Somehow this technology gets almost mainstreamed into our brain, all right? So you almost end up with this kind of situation. He asks, can you fly that helicopter? Let's go. 
Okay, so it's a scene <laughs> from The Matrix, which when The Matrix came out in the 90s, you think far-fetched. Actually, now we walk around with a cell phone embedded almost in our palm all the time, which has huge amounts of intelligence in it. We can fast-forward our audible books into our brain faster um, than we ever could before. Like, how you know, what else needs to happen? And perhaps that's the flag um, of saying that it pulls us across into, um, into this exponential technology growth. And then I mentioned LinkedIn. LinkedIn is interesting. They have a huge amount of data about both um, education, people, and jobs, and they are the natural person to pull those things together in some shape or form um, to offer accreditation. So I'm out of time, and I know I've spoken a little bit quickly, and I feel like I've downloaded quite a lot to you, but, um, and I'm hoping that although it's not specifically around what actuarial education looks like, you can start to think about what are the leaps that we need to think about from an actuarial point of view, and how do we adapt to that into this changing world of education technology. But Let's open up if there are any comments, thoughts, questions. Um, need a microphone. We've got one here. There you go, there you go. Uh, I guess the question that comes to my mind straight away is a lot of this is based on a first world um, technology environment. Um, my understanding is that we get in South Africa many students coming into the tertiary education space who have maybe interacted with a cell phone but not really used Excel, not used Word, not used uh, a, a, a computer on a table uh, or a laptop. Um, and so technology dependent education would not fit a South African context. Do you want, have you got any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, I mean it's, it's interesting in that, um, is it Steve? Yeah. yeah, I mean your comment, or Joe you might have said about disadvantaged students, I can't remember, uh, yeah. Um, it's interesting in that I think of it slightly differently because I think I, with the 10 years of business science students and I'm seeing them in the fourth year only, I'm constantly surprised, disadvantaged or advantaged students, the lack of skills generally in technology around Excel. And I, I don't know actuarial students five years post, but I know um, accounting students because we've, we've done a project with um, Mazars for years. And I know the quality of students arriving in Mazars who've got a CA qualification, who you would think should be very adept at Excel, generally not. Um, and so, so for me, it's almost a bigger problem, not so much about where you're from or dis disadvantage advantage. Or it, it is about access. So that I would concur, that who has access to technology. But I mean, there have been fascinating experiments where, I mean, it's not hard if you think about a, a simple laptop could be three or four thousand rand. Um, and the universities could be a place where people get exposed to it, but there's something else that's missing in that, and it's, it's something about, I, don't, I mean, I come from a software development background where almost most people who've done well have taught themselves in some way, and there's something about that which we're missing somewhere. I've got a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, and I'm going, like, how do you get them to engage? Because I think when people engage themselves, it doesn't matter if they come out of a township or they come out of Bishop's Court or Santon or whatever, they will figure it out themselves and they'll learn it. And somehow that doesn't get through our system. So even by fourth year, I, I mean, I, I'm perplexed sometimes. I just want to comment on that. I, I think... Um uh, you're right about the Excel and all that, but I think what, what you're wrong about is that that's not technology anymore. Um, they, they skip that level, they skip the computer, they're very technology adept on the phone, uh, but they skip that and it's, it's, it's the massa of, of, of software, really. The, you know, nobody goes there anymore, they're just, uh, they're just going straight through. But um, yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't think that means we don't get tech. I mean, I think it just means that, that we can't think of Excel as a tech application. We need to think of stuff that, that's going to come via the phone or via smaller, um, more sort of agile gadgets. I mean, that's interesting. Many people building systems with cell phones for learning, which are chat-based almost, 
to try and get into that millennial mindset where people do Snapchat and WhatsApp most of their life, and it's interacting with a tutor in a chat format, which, is, which they, they adapt to very easily, surprisingly enough. So, so to me, the, the problem has two facets to it. Um, what I'm interested in is what technology we teach our students rather than what technology we use to teach our students. Mm. Um, because I'm increasingly convinced of two things. One, um, our students um, are slower at adapting to new things than previous generations. So I'm amazed at how when we change the operating system of the students, so we change our students from using their school-based calculators to reverse parish on HP12C, they adapt to that much more slowly than 20 years ago. They're much more set in, 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 their, in their ways. Yeah. But the, the second thing that's related to that is that a university is not meant to teach people um, a, a technique per se, but rather how to think and to, and to do high level things uh, around adapting to change. And if we get that right, what we discover, our students embrace new technology when they move into the workplace very, very quickly. Um, because um, one of the reasons our students from disadvantaged backgrounds don't do as well initially is that they don't have a continuous exposure. So you can teach people something, but if they're only using the computers while they're on campus, while they're in the formal system, they're not living on it, that, that knowledge is in cement. And if you think about everyone and how they learn, mm -hmm. you actually learn something when you have to live in it afterwards. So I'm not I'm not convinced that an enormous amount needs to change, but I will give you one thing. When our, our, our maths school thought that they were already ahead of time and they moved people onto Pearson Labs to do maths online several years ago, the quality of maths dropped dramatically because it took away the students' need to struggle. Because the, if you got something wrong on the machine twice, it gave you a hint. And the third time it was wrong, they showed you how to do it because that's what the computer does. And the students learned to game that. And so they didn't go through... Uh, the learning mm. process mm. and studies around the world show that most technology may go faster but humans still learn at the same pace that they used to because mm. uh, our brains haven't got faster in fact they might have got slower I don't know uh, <laughs> and that's more distracted you know, maybe yeah and, and, and there are many more distractions yeah. and the, the thing is as well at the moment I think a lot of what happens with technology and, and you talked about it is we're selecting out the people who are best able to learn on technology Okay, and we'll get wonderful results, but it's not scalable. Mm. Because as soon as you have to go to a full population, you'll discover that those that didn't respond well to the technology, how do we get to them and how do we teach them? Mm. Good. Thanks, Steve. Rizan. Well, just to make a comment as well, and I think this leads quite, Steve's comment leads into Ashley's session as well, because which is more about you know, what technology do we teach in the, um, do we include in, 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 our, um, in our curriculum? But I, I also wanted to ask you the question about assessment yes. um, as to how, because I mean, there's always the argument about how effective the examination-based assessment, a written yes. examination-based assessment is. I mean, we're quite advanced in that we actually allow students to type their exams on a computer. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I guess yes. that's, that's a point as well. Well, it's not just about the teaching, it's also yes. about how do you assess that, that, that the skills have been mastered, if you know what I'm saying, yes. as opposed to just that the material yeah. has been learnt. Yeah, and, it's, and it's, it's tricky from a number of counts, and it's, it, I mean, yeah, it's got pros and cons with technology, I suppose, because you can 
you can do it on scale easier and more people, but some things are harder to assess. So it's hard to assess more the qualitative things um, than the quantitative, and you can't just assess somebody on quantitative. Um, and then there's issues around uh, security and identity theft and things like that, which are tricky, but there are things coming out which the proctoring and identifying people even by their keystrokes. We all apparently have a very unique keystroke pattern. So literally how you type identifies you. Um, so there's systems that can identify you based on that. Um, but, the, but I mean, what, what, what's interesting, I think, from the technology, and I touched on it, was the, the assessment side when you can start using the assessment data to identify, so you think about Khan Academy, they kind of reversed this, this flipped classroom idea of saying, instead of, well, he talks about and he says, rather than what we do is we allow everyone to get 70 or 80%, and as long as they get 70 or 80%, we pass them. But what happens to that 20%? Because it accumulates over time, and at some point, it's a train wreck when that 20% becomes a few key things together, which person this doesn't know. So he's, you've got to get to 100% knowledge of it. So what you do is you do the 80%, and then you make sure they get the 20%, and technology allows you to identify that and, and focus on it. Um, and it also allows the teachers to then use the technology to identify who the students are struggling the most and focus on them to bring them up to speed while streamlining the ones that are at the head of the class. You, a combination, which I think lies in answer to a lot of the things with education technology. Technology on its own seldom solves everything, uh, but a combination of the two and this clever use of technology where you can let the technology do what it does well and you can let humans do what they do well, which is nurturing somebody and helping them or challenging them to get them to struggle based on the assessment results is, is probably a better solution. Oh, thank you. Is it on? Okay, yes. I, mine actually is just a comment. I think the first part of it is covered by the gentleman over there. Uh, my comment was just to say that how do universities structure the curriculum and the, the syllabus in a way that it, 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 it enables us to be able to to, 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 I mean, looking at the fact that, as, as you, you were mentioning, that the universities, I mean, the, 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 the entire spectrum is changing in terms of technology. How do universities uh, structure the syllabus and the curriculum in a way that it is in conjunction with how and the speed at which technology is moving, but at the same time not compromising the standard and the quality and the credibility of the profession itself. Because I think one of the reasons why we go out in the field and not be actually how not comfortable coming back into 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 the academia is mainly because of such trends that are ever changing because by the time you go back the world has changed altogether. So it becomes very difficult for you to come in and try to adjust again. So yeah, that is just my comment. Yeah, I think that's very valid. Yes. I mean, it highlights why we have the work-based learning. Yeah. As, as, um, we have work-based learning as part of our framework. Yes. In a way, it kind of, I mean, I, I said to Peter there, in a way that open loop structure is almost how the actual exams work. Right. You know, that you, you get a base amount of knowledge in terms of the full-time study and then you know, you go out and, you, and you're working and you're writing the exams and it's pretty much how long it takes you to, yes. to master the information, you know. Right. So in a way that is kind of like yeah, absolutely. an open loop kind of, kind of structure. I mean, it does sound like that, yeah, that is very close to that. I mean, not actuarially, but generally education, it's interesting, it's structured almost separately. Like there's an academic portion and then, yes. then you're done and then you must go and learn yes. in the workplace. Whereas if you, if you think about it all as one, it's much yeah. more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. 